as we prepare to hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning through Pastor Brian, let's turn in our Bibles and together let's look into God's Word. Um, If you don't have your Bible with you, it's on page 465 in our Pew Bibles, and it is Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. Join with me as I read. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in a cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and it poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so that I can find another drink? We end our study in Proverbs this morning. We're going out with a bang. Why not, right? Quite a way to end our study. Talking about the drunkard. Reminded of the story of the husband who was out with his friends and had too much to drink. And when he arrived home, he was glad to see that his wife was already in bed as he made his way up the stairs quietly. He knew what she thought of his drinking. He went into the bathroom and he looked into the mirror and he noticed some scrapes and and cuts and sores that he received in a fight earlier that night. So he took some band-aids and he placed them on his cuts one at a time. He then proceeded and climbed into bed, smiling at the thought that he'd pulled one over on his wife. When morning came, he opened his eyes and there stood his wife over him. You were drunk last night, weren't you? No, honey, he replied. Whatever gave you that idea? Well, if you weren't, then who put all the band-aids on the bathroom mirror? (laughs) He was in tough shape. We have in our passage this morning a drunkard who looks at himself in the mirror. And while the specifics of this passage may not apply to you, I still invite you to look into the mirror and see the folly of the sin that so easily entangles you. Every sin brings its own sorrow. Every sin brings its own sorrow. We find here a portrait of one who drinks too much. And I don't know about you, but as the passage was being read this morning, did the thought occur to you as to how up-to-date God's Word is? I mean, these words could be printed on literature for Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before we zero in on this particular section of Proverbs, let me preface it by saying a few words to all of us. First of all, First of all, what is true of the drunkard described so vividly in this passage is illustrative of 
anyone enslaved to sin. If you struggle to escape temptation's power in some particular area in your life other than this, these words are still for you and for me. Secondly, it needs to be said that God's power is greater than any addiction. You think you can never break free from sin's grip on you? Think again. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, believer, and is available to all who want to trust in, put their trust in Jesus Christ. There are living testimonies to that life-changing power that fill this room. And while there are cases of those who experience deliverance instantly, usually that power over particular sin is a daily choice to allow Christ to live in and through you. Thirdly, if you believe that such a subject on drunkenness or addictions is not relevant to you right now, remember that sin's grip can all begin with one step. Sin's grip can all begin with one step. I found it interesting to read of a sign that was posted in one of the village bars in Canada. This bar, this saloon, was undergoing some renovations while remaining open for business. The carpenters were in the process of repairing the entrance steps into the bar, and they discovered that the bottom step was unsafe. They had to leave the step until they were able to come back to it. And so they propped up a temporary sign to warn incoming customers to this bar. The sign read, watch the first step. That's appropriate. He said a mouthful. Watch the first step. It is with that first step that relationships are destroyed. It is with that first step that obsessions are formed. It is with that first step that physical problems and financial losses and human tragedies occur. It is with that one step that other sins can soon follow. Loved ones, watch that first step. Having said that, let's look at Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23, I hope hope you have your Bibles open to that, the passage that Cliff just read for us. There are three headings that are going to provide some handles for us here this morning. We will first look at the aftermath, then we will look at the attraction, and then lastly, the attachment. So first, the aftermath, then the attraction, then thirdly, the uh, uh, attachment to sin. Proverbs, verse, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 29. Look there with me. Proverbs 23, verse 29. It opens up with a riddle. The riddle is this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has bloodshot, bloodshot eyes? That's the riddle. And the answer is verse 30. Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls, of mixed wine. Now, society says wine, women, and song. There's no song here. There's no song here in verse 29. One might sing as if it's a good thing wasting away in Margaritaville, where there's booze in the blender, and soon it will render that frozen concoction that helps me hang on. Really? Really? 
Someone said it this way, there is no situation so bad that a few alcoholic drinks won't make it worse. Here's the sobering truth. Verse 29, there is woe, there is sorrow, speaking to emotional problems. There are relational problems that come to drunkenness. There is strife. There are complaints. There are physical problems, as it says, needless bruises and bloodshot eyes. You see, what starts out as hearty fun ends in heartache. What looks like lots of friends ends up in loneliness. What feels good for the moment ends in lingering pain. And there are people in this room who could share painful accounts of the fierce grip of addiction and its painful reality. It's no laughing matter. Instead, many are the tears of sorrow because of alcohol and other substance abuse or addictions. And the beauty of Scripture is that not only does it inform us of what sin is, but it is brutally honest about the results, the aftermath. Look at verse 32. It's placed in the middle of this section for effect. It's really the climax of the passage. Verse 32, it says, In the end, mark that down, underline it. In the end, it bites like a snake. It poisons like a viper. Oh, the snake has bitten our society. Has it not? 50% of deaths on the road still are attributed to a driver where alcohol was involved. Alcohol is responsible for 81% of domestic violence, 30% of all suicides, 73% of child abuse, and 65% of all drownings. It is estimated that there are over 12 million known alcoholics in our country, which is likely on the low side. 12 million people, 12 million people who likely didn't start out saying, it's my desire to someday lose my job. They didn't likely start out saying, someday it's my desire to lose my health or my self-respect or my marriage or my family. None who began by saying, someday I want to be dependent on alcohol to get through my day or who figured they would live a secretive life double life. Oh, the snake bite is felt today. The sobering truth is that one out of seven people who take their first drink become an alcoholic. Nearly seven million persons ages 12 to 20 are binge drinkers. 75% of all high school seniors report being drunk at least once. Over three million Teenagers aged 14 to 17 have an alcohol problem. And just in case you think that these kinds of statistics describe only those who are in the gutters of Albany or some major city, think again. People with higher education or higher income are more likely to drink and be part of these statistics. Substance abuse is not limited to the dirty back alley. It's in nice homes in locker rooms of your favorite sports teams. It's in the military barracks. And yes, it's even in churches around this country. The snake bite, folks, is real. Americans spend $197 million a day on alcohol. 
Alcoholism and heavy drinking cost our economy an average of $224 billion each year, mostly due to work absenteeism and lower work productivity. See, in the end, in the end, it bites like a snake, it poisons like a viper, and the brewing companies don't tell us that. None of this is written on the bottle. What the beer commercials don't show you is the tragedy and the ruin and the deaths and the relational turmoil that that occurred due to drinking. They don't sell intoxication. They sell fantasy. Advertisers tell us to drink. Movies and TV encourage us to drink. Our friends encourage us to drink. Even well-known Christian speakers and pastors say drink. We sit down in a restaurant, and the first question from our waiter is, can I get you a drink? Now, I need to pause right here because in speaking on this issue, there is an immediate question, maybe in defensiveness, but at least a question on your minds that I really can't spend a lot of time on, but I do want to address briefly. The question facing many evangelical churches today is to drink or not to drink. Is it a a sin to have a drink or, or to drink in moderation or to have a social drink? I mean, we want to know. Is it okay for a Christian to drink? I think the better question is, can it be okay for a Christian to drink? Really? I mean, it's clear from Scripture that drunkenness is sin. We can, as evangelical Christians, agree on that one. And there are some in this room that would hope that that in addressing this subject this morning, I might make a categorical statement that says something like, don't drink. But I can't go that far. The Bible condemns drunkenness, but it doesn't condemn drinking. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says a Christian cannot have a drink. I mean, it warns of the the destructive and potential addictive nature of alcohol, but we cannot, folks, spin Scripture to say what we want it to say and declare to have a drink is always wrong. We can't do that. There are some in this room who have freedom to drink. Those of you who choose not to drink should not look down upon those who choose to drink, or vice versa, I suppose. There are some in this room who have witnessed firsthand the abuses of alcohol and are biased in your thoughts on on it after seeing what it's done to people, and so you hate it, and you want to distance yourself from any association with that, with it. I get that. That's reasonable. You may come from a family history of alcoholism and may even know your own tendencies toward addictions and and you'll choose not to drink. Watching that first step is your approach and I respect that. Matter of fact, matter of fact, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all called to respect that. To urge the person to drink who for conviction and conscience sake cannot would be in direct violation of Romans chapter 14 and causing a brother or sister in Christ to stumble. So just as it's wrong to be legalistic when it comes to drinking, it's also wrong to flaunt our freedom as the pendulum swung the other way. We may indeed be free in our expression of our faith to drink, but Galatians is clear not to use that freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but serve one another in love. Loved ones, let's not allow this issue to cause divisions as Scripture is clear as to what God thinks of that. 
Romans 14, 17 reminds us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the emphasis. So let's not be legalistic and say it's wrong to drink, but neither should we be cavalier about drinking either. We need to be realistic about it. Alcohol is deadly in this culture. It's killing marriages. It's killing jobs. It's killing families. It's killing lives as its poison has just spread for generations. Have you seen that in your own life? Have you seen its poison spread through some of your relationships? Do you know someone who has been bitten by the snake of alcohol? And young people, are you naive to its consequences? Might you be saying, it won't bite me? Proverbs shows us the aftermath as a warning, as a warning. I need to go to the next point. Secondly, let's think about the attraction, the attraction to sin. Look with me again at verse 30, and I'm going to read 31 as well. Those who linger over wine who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Do you see the attraction to the senses of sight and taste? What do the beer ads promise? Thrills, women, life without cares and concerns. After all, it doesn't get any better than this, as one beer company claims. The brewing companies will spend at least $600 million telling you you ought to drink. Oh, I mean, they'll offer this disclaimer, drink responsibly, but they are encouraging you to drink and will put the best advertisements out there. Do they not? I mean, they are the best. Kids can, can, can say them from memory. You know, the frogs will go, Budweiser, but they keep doing it. We know that better than some other things. Terrible. Their ads are in a class by themselves. They are tremendous. Commercials for alcoholic drinks parade happiness, sophistication, prestige, success, social acceptance, and fun. Oh, the attraction of it. The words used in verses 30 and 31 remind us that such temptation to drinking to excess is indeed a moral issue. With all the help we can find in the recovery movement, and there's much, We must not lose sight of the nature of it. It is still sin. It is still sin. Notice the sequence and pattern of the temptation. It goes from lingering to sampling to gazing, which is fixating on it, to going down smoothly, to craving it, as the drunkard says himself in verse 35. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? The warning is clear. When you linger around temptation, you are fast becoming its victim. You cannot truly sever the grip of addiction or break free from sin's enslavement if you're choosing to linger around it, sample sin's taste from time to time. As has been said, most of us don't want to discourage temptation completely. Isn't that true? We play with it. In a twisted sense, we might even enjoy temptation, thinking about how it would be if we gave into it. I ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, are you lingering? 
Are you lingering? Are you dabbling somewhere you shouldn't be dabbling? In an old cartoon strip, Kathy, she was struggling with her diet. In the first frame, Kathy is saying, I will take a drive, but I won't go near the grocery store. Frame two, I will drive by the grocery store, but not go in. Frame three, I will go in the grocery store, but won't walk down the aisle where the candy is on sale. Frame four, I will look at the candy, but not pick it up. Are this resonating at all? I will pick it up, but not buy it. I will buy it, but not open it. I will open it, but not smell it. (laughs) I will smell it, but not taste it. I will taste it, but not eat it. And the final frame, it says, eat, 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 eat. Right? You saw that coming. Can you relate? Isn't that your experience with temptation more than you care to admit? I'm just going to go buy it. I'm going to go in. I'm going to go near. The closer we get to the temptation, the weaker we become. Whatever it is that tempts you to sin, are you putting yourself, here's the question, are you putting yourself in a position where it is making it harder for you to make the right choice? Whatever sin it is that tempts you, the question is, are you putting yourself in a position where it is making it harder for you to make the right choice? Folks, that's not legalism. If you stay away from that, that is wisdom. Will you deal with it at the very first frame? Don't kid yourself that you can handle it or that it isn't hurting anyone. Don't kid yourself. Charles Spurgeon said in a message, he said, you say that you can handle your secret sin and that there's no one hurt by them. But you may as well ask a lion to let you put your head into his mouth. You cannot regulate his jaws, and neither can you regulate sin. Once done, you cannot tell when you will be destroyed. You may put your head in and out a great many times, but one of these days it will be a costly venture. That leads to our third point, the attachment to sin. The attachment to sin. We looked at the attraction of sin. We looked at the aftermath of giving in. Let me read verse 29 again. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Now go down to verse 33. Your eyes will see strange sights, meaning outlandish things. And your mind imagine confusing or all mixed up things. Sounds like fun. Verse 34 compares the drunkard to a disoriented, sleepy, seasick sailor. If you ever been seasick, I have. Is it pleasant? It's not pleasant. But verse 34 says, you'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. And what it's saying here is, it's as if the floor is falling out from under him, like the storm-tossed boat that's going all over the place, and the floor is falling out. You're disoriented. You're seasick. I mean, it sounds like a lot of fun, right? We then hear the words of the drunk himself, he says in verse 35. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. Oh, he will in the morning. Then, when I wake up, when will I wake up so I can find another drink? (laughs) I mean, if this is the aftermath, then you would think 
that one time of feeling its effects would be enough to prevent a second time. You would think that these consequences would push a person away from drinking. You would think that to experience that snake bite and feel its poison, as we saw in verse 32, would cure the drunkard of ever wanting to drink again. But in spite of the pain, in spite of the humiliation, in spite of all the loss, he's back at it the next day. As soon as his head is clear and he is sober, It says, when he wakes up. That's what it means. His head is clear. He is now sober. He's going to repeat the devastating cycle to drink. His behavior makes no sense. He's doing the same thing again and again and again, but hoping for different results. It's insane. It's irrational. It's ridiculous. But the one dominated by a lust and craving loses all common sense and continues in the foolish behavior, destructive behavior. In the time that our family spent in Columbia, South Carolina, for less than one year, we were there. While we were there, there were several reported deaths or near-death experiences of young children overcome by heat exhaustion. They were left in the car at a local store while mom or dad went into the store and forgot about their child in the car. And you ask, how did they forget about their child? And many of the convenience stores in Columbia, South Carolina, they had placed slot machines. The parent would just stop by and play just one game. That led to a second game. That led to a third game until they were in a place of of, of total oblivion to the rest of the real world. The kids were dying in the car. You say, that's crazy. Who would do that? When we are hooked, we lose common sense. When sin gets its grip, we can make all kinds of irrational decisions that if we were in another state of mind, we would never think of doing. Every sin brings its own sorrow. What's your sin? It might not be drunkenness. What is it? Susanna Wesley defines sin this way. She said, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. Again, my subject this morning is on drunkenness, but the application is broader. After all, what is drunkenness? It is giving of yourself over to something. It is giving of yourself over to something. The word is not to give ourselves over to anything, hoping it brings fullness of life rather than Jesus. It might not be drunkenness for you, but anything we give ourselves over to other than Christ is a form of idolatry. So whatever it is that you keep looking to for fullness and satisfaction, what do you find? You find that it betrays you. It doesn't bring you fulfillment and satisfaction you were looking for. But what happens? Even though we know it didn't bring us lasting satisfaction but only regret, what do we often do? We run to it again. 
I mean, we laugh at the drunkard here and call him a moron for doing the same thing the next chance he gets, but we do it too. Oh, that pornography did nothing to really satisfy me. Will that stop you from logging on the next chance you get? That binging on food did nothing for me. Will that stop you from going there again to find release? That sharing of that juicy gossip didn't bring me satisfaction at all. It only brought me regrets. But will you crave it again when the, when the last regret wears off? You see, that relationship, that drug, that video game, that comfort food, that scratch ticket, that playing, pay, placing of a bet that approval of people, whatever it might be for you, whatever might be your drug of choice, if you're running to it instead of running to Christ, you will not find freedom, only unhealthy attachment and bondage. Every sin brings its own sorrow. Don't go to it to drown yourself of that sorrow. As someone has said, people who drink to drown their sorrow should be told that sorrow knows how to swim. (laughs) See, the answer to the mess you're in, if you're in a mess, even if it's self-inflicted, isn't found in the thing that got you there in the first place. You want to break free? The only way to freedom is to address what's going on below the waterline, below the surface. The root issue. Why do I keep doing this? Once a year, the town drunk made a pilgrimage to the church to make things right with his creator. Each year, when the altar call was given, he would once again, like he did all the other years, stumble down the aisle praying so everyone could hear him. Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Clean out the cobwebs. One little old lady, exasperated by the drunk's routine, interrupted his trip to the altar by standing and praying, Lord, forget the cobwebs, kill the spider. (laughs) Yes, that's a pretty good prayer. We must get below the behavior to what what are the causes. See, God not only wants to clean out the cobwebs, he wants to kill the spider. God isn't after some behavior modification, but heart transformation. I can guarantee you this. The more you try to modify behavior without your heart being transformed, the more you enslave yourself to that sin. You will not know freedom that way. The goal isn't to replace one unhealthy attachment with another unhealthy attachment but to go deeper than that and fill your heart with the love of Jesus Christ. Know him better. Be passionate for him. I ask you, do you need to address some real matters of the heart? Do I? Do we need to come clean somewhere in our life? Is there a brother or sister in Christ you need to talk to ASAP about some areas of struggle in your life? Is there a first step you've taken that needs to be disrupted now? Don't Wait until you are way over your head. Author and pastor Max Lucado spoke candidly about his own personal struggle with alcohol. In his own words, he said, I come from a family of alcoholism. If there's anything about this DNA stuff, I've got it. And for more than 20 years, drinking wasn't an issue for Max Lucado. 
But in 2001, it nearly became one. Lucado recalled, I lowered my guard a bit. One beer with a barbecue won't hurt. Then another time with Mexican food. Then a time or two with no food at all. And one afternoon, on his way to speak at a men's retreat, he began to plot. Where could I go buy a beer and not be seen by anyone I know? He drove to an out-of-the-way convenience store, parked, and waited till all the patrons left. He entered, bought a beer, held it close to his side, and hurried to his car. I felt a sense of conviction, Lucada remembers, because the night before, I'd had a long talk with my oldest daughter about not covering things up. Ouch. Locato didn't drink that beer. Instead, he rolled down the window, he threw it in a trash bin, and asked God for forgiveness. He also decided to come clean with the elders of his church about what happened. And he said, when I shared it with the elders, they just looked at me across the table and said, Satan is determined to get you for this right now. We're going to cover this with prayer, but you've got to get the alcohol out of your life. Locato said, and I really took that as a word from God. For Max Locato, that one drink could no longer be an option. Listen. At any point, at any point, you can end your relationship to a particular sin. At any point. If the thought occurs to you that since you already blew it, you might as well keep blowing it because I already blew it, that is stinking thinking. Get it out of there. It's from the evil one. However the many steps you've taken, you can break that stride at any point by choosing to step in a different direction. Stop trying to cover it up with Band-Aids. It's much easier to deal with the sin by not covering it up, by confessing it. That's where you can break free because every sin has its own sorrow. Take that sorrow to the Lord. May it be godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow that leads you to repentance. Whatever it might be for you, it might not be this. It might be something else. Let's look in the mirror of God's word this morning and see how it applies to our lives. Let's pray.